just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Isabel Hardman. As France enters its 62nd weekend of protests, President Macron's honeymoon is well and truly over. But has he found a new friend in Boris Johnson? Plus, what is the problem with the Labour leadership race? And last, what's killing Britain's salmon? First, Emmanuel Macron needs an ally. Back home, the country has been protesting against his Labour reforms, unemployment remains stubbornly high, and abroad, the country's military entanglement in Africa is only getting messier. Could Macron be looking to Boris for help? That's the argument Jonathan Miller makes in this week's cover piece, and he joins me down the line from France now. And in the studio with me is Charles Grant, director of the Centre for European Reform. So, Jonathan, you've written about a bromance that's blossoming between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron. Just, just tell us a little bit about the evidence for, for this, for this well, lovely relationship. It is what the late great Tony Bambridge at the Sunday Times used to call a scoop of interpretation. And, and really, I noticed, the first thing I noticed, well, I've been covering Macron really since before he got elected, and I noticed that last year as he was traversing the country on his great debate, he never missed an opportunity to really put the knife in into Britain. He was talking about Brexit, about how it was insane, it was nationalistic, it was, it was, it was self-harming. And then suddenly he stopped saying any of these things. And it was the absence of what he was saying that first drew my attention to this. This is all pretty circumstantial, I admit. The second thing was when he visited the Elysee and I noticed these photographs of, of him putting his feet on the furniture, which he'd been invited to do by, uh, by the president. And they were all having a great giggle, even though the British press the other day talked about how insulting Boris had been. It was obvious that they were having a great time. And then the, uh, the third thing was really after this uh, NATO summit in Luton, uh, or Woking or wherever it was, uh, and they had this reception at Buckingham Palace and there was Justin Trudeau regaling the assembled spectators who included the ever-gossip-attentive um, Princess Anne with his latest story about President Trump. And there were there were uh, Boris and uh, Macron shoulder to shoulder. And so it was those three little incidents that made me think, maybe there is something going on between these two guys. And it, it does actually make sense that there should be. And indeed, there are whispers from the usual sources that there is, in fact, something to this. Boris speaks French. Uh, he gets on well with Macron. Macron doesn't have a lot of friends. Macron had obviously been hoping that Angela Merkel would be his, uh, his best, his BFF, I think is the phrase. But she turned out to be a bit of a disappointment. And so he's got Boris. And as you look at this, there is actually quite a lot that these two can do to cooperate. Boris talks a lot about our European friends. He's very open and friendly. He's not hostile. Even Macron has been saying some reasonably non-contentious things about 
about the British. It could be quite positive for Brexit then, couldn't it? I'll just move that to Charles. Does this sound like the next phase of negotiations between Britain and the EU could uh, could see Macron actually helping Boris Johnson out? Uh, not really. I mean, like, Jonathan is quite right that there is quite a good relationship between Boris and Macron. I've had that confirmed from my own sources. He's also right that the Franco-German relationship, which I've studied in some detail for the past 30 years, is in a very dire state at the moment. The French and the Germans don't trust each other. Macron keeps doing unilateral things that really upset the Germans. And, and the, he's frustrated with Merkel's lack of vision. The Germans think the EU works OK. Macron thinks it needs radical reform in order to function effectively and so on. They disagree on the euro and everything, blah, blah, blah. But I, on, on, on Brexit, it's not quite as simple as all that, because the, the EU as a whole sets a policy on Brexit. Macron can have some influence on that. And the EU's policy as a whole is, if Britain wants a Canada-style free trade agreement quickly, it can only have it if it signs up to what the EU calls level playing field provisions. That means it agrees to keep EU rules on social environmental issues, tax, state aid, and so on. And as far as I'm aware, Macron is, is as tough as anybody on that. They don't want the British to sort of cheat by attracting un, uh, investment through so-called social dumping by sitting offside, off, off the edge of the EU, attracting investors in from France, Germany, and elsewhere. And I think the French are the toughest of the tough when it comes to the actual terms of the free trade agreements. I don't think the fact that they, the two guys respect each other and can have a laugh together, which is absolutely right. I don't think that means a lot for the Brexit negotiations, I'm afraid. Are there other benefits that Boris Johnson could see, or, or indeed Macron could see from this relationship, Charles? Well, on foreign policy, yes, because Macron is a realist. He, he does talk to people he disagrees with. He talks a lot to Trump and Putin and Erdogan, the big, strong men who, whose values he doesn't share. He does talk to them. And in a way, he sees almost Boris perhaps in that perspective. If, if, you, if you don't agree with somebody, talk to them and help to get them, bend them round to your side. It hasn't often worked with Macron, but sometimes it does work. He got some French prisoners out of a Turkish prison by, by talking nicely to Erdogan and flattering Erdogan. I think on foreign policy cooperation, Boris, although he leads a, a rather right-wing, rather Eurosceptic, rather pro-American government on the big foreign policy challenges like climate, Iran, the Middle East, and uh, he's actually more lined up with the Europeans than he is with, with, with Trump, and Macron's trying to keep him lined up with the Europeans. Well, Jonathan, this sounds much more positive than the domestic picture from Macron. Just uh, sketch a little bit for, for listeners about what's going on this week there. Well, Macron has been in a state of political crisis, as has France now, for really more than a year since uh, the, the Gilets Jaunes movement was launched and it's intensified now with these strikes, this wave of strikes against, against pension reforms. And Macron's personality is, is not a personality that is terribly outgoing. I don't think he, he is very talented at making friends and influencing people. I don't know if I can be allowed to come back at Charles, and, and certainly he knows the territory of Brussels far more than I. It's been years since I worked there. I am not quite so pessimistic, and I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. First of all, I know Brussels likes to take the lead, and you have Barnier and these guys making these quite strong statements. But in the end, I, and maybe Charles can correct me, I think really that the grown-ups are the governments, and they are, the, the, the Council of Ministers is, it presides, and they are looking you know, Germany is looking at an auto industry literally facing the precipice. Macron is looking at French industries which have enormous stakes in, in the United Kingdom. And thirdly, Macron is looking at a war that, to be charitable, he's not winning in Africa, a war that he inherited from Francois Hollande. He desperately needs help. The Germans are about as 
much use as a chocolate teapot, to use the old cliché. And the British are really the only people who are likely to help him at all. And I think when the, uh, when the rubber hits the road, I'm, I'm not short of clichés this afternoon, sense will prevail that, in fact, there can be an accommodation that works. It's not necessary for Britain to observe every European rule, only that the material that is exported and imported in between Britain and Europe should be in conformity. And I don't think that's insurmountable. I think there's too much, the prize is too great for both sides to throw it away in, 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 in somewhat bureaucratic... I'll just go back to Charles mistake. just on the, the, the point about Macron's leadership and uh, you know his foreign policy and domestic policy not going well for him. Do you think this is actually down to, to Macron himself or is it just bad luck? I, th- I think, well, I'm about some more positive view of Macron than, than Jonathan. I used to know him quite well when he was a backroom boy in the Elysee working for Hollande, and he's spoken at my think tank a couple of times. I, I admire him for having lots of ideas and energy and enthusiasm. He's got a great intellect, but I agree with Jonathan. He's not very good at getting people to go along with him. He's too arrogant, too impatient, too hot-headed, just acts, shoots from the hip and doesn't think before he talks sometimes. But on, on, on Jonathan's point, I, I agree with half of what Jonathan said. Uh, I think in the in the foreign policy and defence and security area, there is a pushback from Macron and Merkel and other member states against the Commission to give the British a very good deal, whereby we can plug the British into European foreign defence security policy machinery so the British can contribute. And in return, they must be listened to and consulted and respected in a proper way. And that's been a shift in the last year on the EU's attitude to security cooperation post-Brexit. On the, on the economics and trade, I'm a bit more sceptical of what Jonathan says. I, I see no evidence that the Germans and the French and even the, and the Commission are really pushing for anything other than a pretty hard Brexit at the moment. That, that, that may change in time, but I mean, the, 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 hard, the, the hard Brexit is, is coming, I think, because the, the French really care about so-called level playing field provisions. The idea the British could undercut the, the EU countries by slashing rules and regulations just on, outside the EU. And so the, the French and the Germans and the Commission are very keen that the British should update their rules when the EU rules change, follow EU rules. And if the British don't want to do that, that's fine, but they'll get a very thin deal as a result. That, that at the moment is what Macron thinks, I believe. And Charles, just finally, you mentioned some of Macron's character flaws. I've been talking to people who are working out what Boris Johnson should do with his time now he has a majority. And as much as he gets on with Macron, they are trying to learn some lessons from some of his domestic mistakes. What do you think that Boris should not do that Macron has done? Well, I think Macron's biggest mistake is 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 that he's he's too impetuous and he doesn't he doesn't he comes across as arrogant and doesn't listen to people. So Boris Boris needs to t- learn that lesson. And if you want to make big changes quickly, and Boris, I think one gathers, does want to do that, then you need to bring people along with you and uh, and not not come over as condescending. And so that that was that would be the advice I reckon. Jonathan, briefly, do you agree with that? I I do agree with Charles. And I think Macron's great vulnerability is his personality. He's been a geek all his life. He was always the smartest kid in the room. Uh, he has a certain arrogance. He has a quite a short temper. In public yes, yesterday in, in Jerusalem, he, he, he played this incident with the Israeli police at St. Anne's Church very badly. And it reminded me of a couple of incidents on the street in France where he met a 15-year-old boy who he admonished in a rather abrupt and and some would say cruel fashion, his somewhat contemptuous attitude towards the gilet jaune. Yes, it is a personality issue, but in fact, it, it is yin and yang. Boris has got everything that Macron hasn't got. 
in terms of outgoing personality. He's funny. He's relaxed. He gets on with people. And Macron's got some of the qualities that uh, clearly Boris lacks. This incredible ability to study, to plan, and uh, to think forward. And maybe they can help each other. I think they need each other. I think this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Thank you, Charles and Jonathan. Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk. Where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Bryony Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes store. Next, Labour's leadership race is narrowing, but James Forsyth writes in this week's political column that all the remaining candidates are missing the point. None of them are thinking about what the party really needs to do in order to win. Is he right? He joins me now together with Gloria De Piero, former Labour MP for Ashfield. So James, you write in this week's issue that Labour has to change in order to win. Have you seen any evidence that that's going to happen from the debate in the leadership race so far? No, not really. I mean, in the last 40 years, only two leaders of the opposition have become Prime Minister. That's Tony Blair and David Cameron. They both ran on an explicit change to win platform. And both of their parties were sufficiently keen for power that they were prepared to do that. This Labour leadership contest seems to be everyone trying to tell the membership kind of what they think the membership wants to hear. I think it's quite telling that when the the remaining candidates in the race talk about the Labour manifesto, they suggest that, you know, maybe it was just a little bit too much. They don't want, they don't question the direction, but just how quickly they were going there. This idea that, you know, it was trying to do 15 years worth of work in one parliament. And I think that, that shows a party that hasn't really come to terms with how badly it lost in December. Gloria, you're backing Lisa Nandy for leader. Mm -hmm. Do you disagree with James's analysis of her and the other candidates that they're not actually really telling the members what they need to hear? A bit. I mean, Lisa did say um, that if we don't change, then we will die and we will deserve to, which is a pretty blunt message. I mean, things are really bleak for the Labour Party. I don't think anybody should uh, forget December the 12th. The reason why I'm backing Lisa is because... It's not just the things that she is saying in this leadership contest. She's actually been asking the right questions of the Labour Party for, I think, pretty much since she came into Parliament. We we became friends. I didn't know her at all. never met her before. But we became friends because neither of us particularly liked Parliament. <laughs> we felt a bit <laughs> unhappy and miser- miserable there, which I think is healthy, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, like me, she, has, um, she, she lives in the town that she represents and she represents a town. Uh, what is now a, maybe a blue wall town, in my case. It changes you. It changes you enormously. In what way? Well, if, if, you'd, have been te- if you'd have told my 25-year-old self that I'd have been uh, writing pieces and touring TV studios saying respect the result of that referendum, I'd have thought you were bonkers. But it has brought me back down to earth it just made me realize very very quickly that the conversations that were going on in those towns were had very little to do with the conversations that I was having as a journalist actually but that you know just as living in London I mean I think 
I'm not going to slag off any of the candidates. I just think she has been, she's demonstrated that she's been asking the right questions. And, you know, you mentioned Tony Blair. I mean, the idea that Tony Blair would have gone into that 1994 leadership contest saying, um, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to scrap Clause 4. I mean, you know, he would have been a bit choosy as well, James. <laughs> I, I think there is truth to that. But I also think that both Blair and Cameron sought a mandate from their parties to change. They both were quite clear that, you know, I, I mean, Blair was a rejection of the idea it was just one more heave was going to be enough to get Labour over the line at the next election. Now, you know, ironically, in uh, 1994, he probably one more he would have got Labour over the election, not with the kind of majority that, that Blair got. But you know that, that was the position in the electoral cycle, which I don't think Labour are, are at now. I think Lisa Nandy has got the most interesting explanation of why Labour lost. I think she is right about one of the problems that Labour have, which is they are perceived to be talking down to lots of their traditional heartlands. I think that there is a kind of paradox here, which is she talks about the importance of listening and respect. And then she says, but I'm still in favour of free movement. I think a policy that is a large part of what drove lots of people, uh, lots of those traditionally Labour heartland areas to vote for Brexit in 2016. And I think one of the issues that did drive people towards the Tories in 2019. So it's not enough just to listen. You've got to act on what you're hearing Mm -hmm. as well. Gloria, just on that freedom of movement policy, were you disappointed with that? I I asked her about it, actually. I didn't read the whole speech, but I said, um, talk me through this. And um, she said to me, there were questions about single market access uh, versus freedom of movement, which is a legitimate debate to be had. It's a difficult one. I don't disagree with you. But she, and I'm certainly not Lisa's spokesperson because it was a private conversation, but this is how she explained it to me. She said, you know... There is no, nobody wants to stop young people going to work abroad, but actually in our constituencies, they don't, or study abroad. So that's a, that's a problem with freedom of movement. And she also said, and when people come to work in this country, perhaps in our NHS, well, that angers many of our constituents, not because they are working on our NHS, but because the nursing bursaries that would have enabled our communities to work in the NHS that door was close to them. So she had a a slightly more uh, nuanced argument. Like I say, I'm not her spokesperson, but we did have a private chat about that. Thanks for sharing that with us, Gloria. (laughs) James, you've said in your piece also that the Tories are getting quite worried about Lisa Nandy. Why is that? Of the three candidates who seem pretty much certain to make it through to the next round, I mean, they look at Rebecca Long-Bailey and it it is essentially continuity Corbyn. I don't think they're particularly concerned about that. I mean, they view Keir Starmer as quite a predictable opponent. You know, I mean, the the point made is that, you know, however good Keir Starmer was in the House of Commons at detail, he didn't really create any memorable drama or moment about Brexit. And he's a predictable opponent. You can know what line he is going to go down. I mean, their feeling about Lisa Nandy is that because her politics are more of a fusion of different traditions, she's less easy to put in a box. I don't mean they are scared of any of the candidates but I think that I think they they think that she would propose right now the kind of biggest test of them because I think they they know how they want to they know how they want to attack both Rebecca Long-Bailey and Keir Starmer if they got the job I think Lisa Nandy is a slightly more challenging person to take on. Now her problem Gloria is that she's not front runner by any Mm. means she only gained her first constituency Labour Party nomination last night which isn't necessary for her to make it onto the final ballot she's already done that through the affiliate nominations 
route, but it does say something about where the membership are, that they're so much further ahead with nominations for Keir Starmer, for instance, than they are with Lisa. How does she have a breakthrough moment? So Lisa was starting really from largely an unknown candidate. So absolutely, this is a, a struggle. Every time Lisa does a TV interview, and I say this not just as somebody who's backing her, but somebody who used to make these programmes, I worked on On The Record, I worked on the Jonathan Dimbleby programme, long-form political interviews. I mean, they were sort of came to an end because the politics was so boring. <laughs> I mean, you know, they sort of mastered how not to answer questions in a long-form political interview. So it was like, why do we keep doing these? I mean, it's, it's painful to watch these things. And... Watching Lisa Nandy, it's, it's like I'm sort of interested again. You're engaging with the questions, you're answering the questions. This is a, you're making me think. You are thinking while this this engagement is going on. You're actually engaging in this interview. Can she do enough of that though? So I would say just more broadcast, do as much broadcast as you can because she's she's interesting. And do you know what? Wouldn't it be nice to um, have a leader from outside a big city? Do you think that's important, having a, it's a northern the, voice? It's not the main reason, but I, I think it's um, it's an additional bonus. Of course, you know she's a, a you know a northern woman. I mean, even a woman would be progress. <laughs> Can we have a double knock, whammy, and have them not from a big city too? We will see. Uh, whatever happens, she's going to be a big figure in our party because she has demonstrated that she can she can think. She's an original thinker, and. I think she can be, you know, we sort of talk about Tony Blair being the, the head candidate for Labour Party members, but we lost some of our heart along the way. And then Jeremy Corbyn was the heart candidate and perhaps we lost some of our head along that journey. But I think she's potentially the heart and head candidate there. James, the, the party is, it seems, uh, the way that the, obviously the parliamentary arithmetic is and just the sheer scale of the recovery that they will need to, to manage. The party is about to elect someone who will play a sort of Neil Kinnock role in trying to rebuild the party for a future leader, not at the next election, but in a few elections' time. Do you think that's right or do you think politics is still so unpredictable that we could have a Labour government in five years' time? I think A, politics is unpredictable and no one quite knows how Brexit is going to play out. I also think that no party has ever won a fifth term in office in the democratic era in British politics, and the Tories will have to try and do that at the next election. You know, and it's going to be an interesting challenge of how successful Boris Johnson is at this attempt to kind of to kind of almost kind of create a kind of year zero about his premiership. You know, and kind of You know, I'm not a continuation of the, of the old Tory governments. I, I think the kind of interesting question in a way is Lisa Landy is in some ways a victim of the timing of a general election because. I think if there was a party conference or some moment when you had a kind of everyone would tune in and watch it in the way that David Cameron had in 2005 with the Tory membership, when, you know, all the leadership contenders gave their speeches one after another, I think that would massively benefit her. I think the challenge for her is that she is trying to catch up with the others in a format that... Inherently favours the front runner. You know, these hustings where you're only allowed to give a 40 second answer. You know, it is very hard to say anything, let alone anything interesting, in 40 seconds. And I think that is the problem for her. But I mean, but you do, you do wonder though. She is undoubtedly laying down a marker in this contest. And and if, as as you were saying in your question, if this is a more than one election job for Labour, you can see. I mean, you, you can see how she might well come back into the picture again. A little bit of room for optimism for the Labour Party. 
And believe me, it's not hard. It, I mean, it's, it's hard uh, to, to be an optimist in the Labour Party right now. But I knocked on a lot... I've knocked on so many doors over the last 10 years, but I knocked on a lot at the last general election too. That general election was a referendum on the Labour Party, a referendum which we failed miserably. But out of every door that I knocked on, and I knocked on, I mean, hundreds and hundreds. I, I was out there most days. Not one person said, do you know what, I love that Boris Johnson. Or, oh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Tory now. There were people who were saying, I hate Tories, but I'm voting Tory now. But they want to be won back. They want to, and that is up to the Labour Party. But they want to come home. That is also an opportunity for Boris Johnson to sort of remodel the Tory party. And there is a, a big group there of working class Tories. So he has an opportunity too. And there are real threats there if they manage it. See the flexing their muscles in HS2, for example. So it is not over. They still, def- those people that vote Tory, they still got on Labour. But I can't vote Labour this time. So there's hope. But my God, it's tough. Thanks, James and Gloria. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books. We've had in recent months, from the thriller writer Lee Child to the historian Peter Frankopan, we've had Deborah Lipstadt on anti-Semitism, Judith Carr on the Mog books, and Wendy Cope on her wonderful poetry. We hope there's something there for everyone, and if you think there might be, all you need to do is search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store or whichever your podcast provider is, and sign up to get a weekly dose of Spectator Books conversation. And last, what is killing Britain's salmon? In the 1980s, there were 9 million salmon in the Atlantic. Today, that figure is a mere 2 million. Scottish fishermen are no longer allowed to catch salmon on their coasts. But the problem shows no sign of abating, writes angler Mike Daunt in this week's issue. So what can be done? Mike joins me now, and down the line from Dorset is Dylan Roberts, head of fisheries at the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. So, Dylan, just how bad is the problem of salmon population decline in the UK? It is very serious. We are at crisis point, I believe. Salmon stocks, as Mike uh, mentioned in his article, have declined by some 70% over the last 30, 40 years. And the last two or three years have been absolutely dire in the number of, of adults coming back into the river. So we are literally at a crisis point. And why is this happening, Mike? Written in your piece. Well, one thing I want to make quite clear, huge numbers of people um, have already got at me for not mentioning salmon farms as, as one of the causes. They are not the cause. One of the, the far, far more important causes than the salmon farm, um, which are a bloody nuisance, but they are absolutely vital necessity. Otherwise, the wild salmon would be poached rotten. And as it is, the great public can have their salmon without the wild fish being poached. One of the real problems is the birds, which eat huge numbers of, of, of the smolt, which are the young salmon migrating to the sea, and the par, which are the young salmon coming from the egg and up to the smolt stage. And the, the birds, gusanders, cormorants, etc., etc., do terrible damage. There is no question. And, and as I wrote in my article, I taught Michael Gove, who's got a great brain, but he does bugger all about salmon. And when I said that the birds ought to be shot rotten, he said, I rather like birds, and I could have murdered him. Predation is, is a problem. We are finding that there are high levels of predation of our juveniles in the river, 
and that is a problem that does need to be addressed. I think we certainly believe in that there needs to be a degree of management to balance nature with regard... Well, a lot of management, they need to be shot. Well, the problem is, if you take that attitude, and I think you get what Michael Gove does and sort of looks at you and just says, well, you know, that's never going to happen. You know, fish-eating birds are a problem, as I say, and they do need to be managed. So that is one issue. But there are many, many issues affecting salmon stocks and the declines. We know that a lot is happening out at sea. But one thing that we firmly believe through the research we are doing is that a lot of things that are happening in the rivers are affecting the fish's ability to survive at sea. Our research is showing that young salmon are getting smaller. So when they hit the sea, they are smaller and less fit. And we, our research also shows that if you're smaller hitting the sea, going to sea, then you are less likely to return as an adult. So we need to look at the reasons why salmon are getting smaller in our rivers. Is that temperature, climate change caused? But I, we do think, and I agree with Mike, that uh, intensive agriculture is a big, big problem. The intensification of agriculture over the last 30, 40 years through the common agriculture policy has really hit rivers very, very hard. Now, Mike, I must confess that I probably have sympathies with Michael Gove here because I am a bird watcher and I get incredibly excited when I see a goosander or a maganza, for that matter. They are native birds. So what's to say that why should they be controlled? Because of the damage at the moment that they are doing to the, the, the salmon, the, the cormorant is far worse than the grisandra. Is there the an maganza. overpopulation of these birds? Vast amounts. And, and certainly the cormorants, I say, which is a major problem, I mean, that causes serious problems. What is, what is fascinating is that the Atlantic Salmon Trust have already discovered from their, their tagging of smolts that 50%, that's huge, of the salmon disappear in the river whilst migrating to sea and a further 10% disappear in the estuary. Now, so it isn't all at sea that's the problem, it's our own rivers. Why, I can't tell you, but it's probably agriculture, as, as Dylan rightly says. Now, Dylan, can you tell us a little bit about the way in which you track the population of salmon? Do you tag them? Yes, we do. Um, technology's advanced now where we can put in acoustic tags into young salmon and track them down through the rivers and estuaries. And this is work that we've been doing and also work the Atlantic Salmon Trust have been doing. We're doing it in the south of England. Atlantic Salmon Trust are doing it in Scotland. And there are other projects. And yes, some preliminary results are showing that there are quite large, there are quite large losses in some rivers as the fish are migrating downstream to the sea. And that is it's good news in some ways because that means that, well, you know, we do have some control over what's happening in the rivers. So it's probably easier to manage that than if they were all lost at sea. That's certainly a benefit. And uh, I think, we, you know, as managers and as scientists, one of the things that we haven't done very well in the past, I would admit, is that we haven't worked in a joined up coherent way. And But I think things have got to such a crisis now that we do need to forge together to, you know, sort these problems out and do what we can to alleviate, you know, at least a proportion of, of the decline and and, and, address, and trying to get, get an upturn in stocks. This is being done. We've formed now a Missing Salmon Alliance, a group of organisations who have been working on salmon for a number of years, the Atlantic Salmon Trust, Game of Us, the Game of Wildlife Conservation Trust, the Angling Trust, Fish Legal and Salmon Trout Conservation have all forged now an umbrella body called the Missing Salmon Alliance. And our goal is to work more closely together, to collaborate and, uh, and use resources more effectively 
to try and address some of these questions that are affecting salmon at the moment. Mike, can you give us any examples of where conservation is working, where salmon are leaping up rivers? It would pe- Those of us who often walk along watercourses do see salmon ladders and presume that's because there are some salmon, but it, is this, are they quite pointless because there's no fish to go up them? Well, there used to be salmon. But that's why there are salmon ladders, that's, and, and, and the, you know, they're, they're essential. But the, the salmon population is going down and down and down. And, I mean, it, it is pathetic for me to say that I'll be very surprised if my grandchildren catch a salmon. And that's an awful admission. And, and, and uh, to say that about our salmon in this country, and particularly Scotland, which is the birthplace of salmon fishing in the world and to say that our children will not catch a salmon is tragic you're an angler has this changed the way that you fish presumably at the moment you'd feel a little bit guilty if you caught a salmon no i don't feel guilty because we put them all back now but i'm I'm, i have a photograph of myself and hugh falkers possibly the most famous fisherman of the last century when we were fishing one of the most famous pools in scotland the junction pool of the tweed um, when we caught 124 salmon in a week, which is a huge number of salmon. And we killed every single one without exception. Because in those days, nobody even, it didn't cross their mind to put a, to return a salmon. We ate them, we smoked them. The only ones that returned were old red ones, which were full of milk for spawning. But we didn't put anything back. Nowadays, thank God, we are putting them back. Dylan, last word? I think um, we all need to pull together to work more closely and the anglers can do their bit by, as Mike alluded to, putting fish back. I think every, we have a, come to a point now where every fish counts. The killing of salmon cannot be, of wild salmon cannot be accepted anymore. Stocks are so low that every single fish that enters our river or come close to our rivers need, need to be protected. Dylan and Mike, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. Do pick up the latest issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as more from Anne Applebaum, Philip Henscher and me, Isabel Hardman. And remember, you can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12 at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, as well as a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. (laughs) 